you're crying. Um, I came across that a couple of weeks ago, and I want to show you because I think it actually captures the message of our passage so beautifully, that one video. Michael, prior to adoption, had no security, no family, no parents, and now he's given the love and adoration of a new family. And and you notice how confident and joyful and bold he is. And much more, um, his whole class came to support him and share in that joy. Isn't that just a wonderful picture of confidence and boldness and joy and access and community? Michael will no doubt go through teenage years, and let me tell you now, teenage years are rough. <laughs> and uh, he'll mess up, and there'll be thing, times when he wonders and doubts his status. Do my parents really love me? Do they really want the best for me? And I really hope that when Michael gets to that stage, he'll remember this, because there's no greater reminder of just how loved he is how supported he is. Now, I put that before you because I want to ask you the question, what would it be like to live your entire life like little Michael there in that video? What would it be like? Because guess what? That is what being a Christian is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a life of confidence and boldness and joy and being loved and loving in return. And it's a life of encouragement and support from your brothers and sisters. That is what the Christian life is supposed to be like. This passage that we read, that we'll look at, will show us how to feed, how to revel in that kind of confidence. Because let's admit it, maybe along the way you've lost sight of that. Let me pray and let's get into it. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that little visual picture of Michael's adoption. Help us, whether we're followers of Jesus or just investigating, help us to today understand and experience that, that confidence, that assurance, that community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I have a couple of points. Um, these, uh, the verses that we're going to particularly look at are 19 to 25. Please keep your Bibles open. And uh, the rest of the verses, 26 to 20, uh, 39, we're going to look at, but really that first section, 19 to 25, is a window to the rest of the chapter. Now the big idea in this chapter is the idea of confidence or boldness. Now you see that because it starts with confidence. Also towards the end, verse 35, it says again, do not throw away your confidence. So at both ends, we've got this idea of confidence. Now verses 19 to 21 recaps on the what and why of confidence when it comes to God. So there it is on the uh, overhead. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then it goes on. But let's just have a look at that in terms of a three um, statement summary. It's there for you on the um, overhead. It's saying, number one, we have confidence to enter God's presence. Pretty cool. Number two, it says... We enter, how do we enter? By the sacrificial death of Jesus. So when when it talks about his blood and his body, that's what it means. When Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice, that's how we enter. And then number three, we can continue to enter God's presence by the eternal priesthood of Jesus. Now, I would love to develop these in detail, but I don't have to because they're actually a, a recap of the whole book of Hebrews from chapter one until the first half of chapter 10. All right, so if you want to catch up, please go back to the sermon series. We actually did it last year, I think starting around August last year of Hebrews. 
Um, and Hebrews really uses the Old Testament images of temple and curtain and sacrifice and priesthood. But again, I don't have time to go through that again. Just to let you know, that was basically the last 10 chapters of Hebrews. Now, it's interesting, I, I googled the word confidence, and when you google confidence, most of the results come up, and it's about self-confidence, right? Having confidence in yourself, self-esteem, that kind of stuff. But actually, it's very different to the kind of confidence that Hebrews is talking about. And the difference is this, about uh, almost 20 years ago, actually, I actually had to look this up. Do you guys remember who this is? Who knows who that is? William Hung, William Hung in 2004, auditioned for um, American Idol, and he did the he, She Bang song. Look it up, Google, it's very funny. Um, William Hung is a, is, is a picture of self-confidence, but very misplaced self-confidence because he was terrible, all right? See, that's the difference between self-confidence and Christian confidence. Christian confidence is not how I feel about myself, ultimately. It's about the objective work of Jesus on our behalf and what that achieves for us. Your confidence in something outside of yourself. Who's heard of the uh, K-pop group Twice? All right, they're pretty big, apparently, I've heard. Uh, they, were in a, they were in Sydney just a couple of weeks ago. And um, one of my kids decided to get tickets to their concert, and uh, it cost like 300 bucks, all right, per ticket. Um, she's earning her own money, so she can do that if she wants. But um, they were actually more expensive tickets. So the top-tier tickets, I think four or 500 bucks, it would give you the ac- I mean, really good seats, obviously, but you can actually go early for their sound tests and so on. So it gives you extra perks. Um, you don't have to line up for merch and all that kind of stuff. But I'll tell you what, there were no tickets that you could buy for the Twice concert that could get you backstage with them. No tickets. You couldn't buy any tickets. No matter how much you wanted to pay, none of it would have got you backstage with that group. You know what Hebrews is saying? Jesus by his sacrificial death, gets us backstage with God. Right into the Holy of Holies. To be in God's very presence. The God, the creator of the universe, the king of the universe, infinite, omnipresent, omniscient, all the omnis. We get to be in his presence forever. That's how much access we've got through Jesus. There's an old hymn I used to sing. We used to love singing. It's called And Can It Be. It's one verse that goes like this. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That's what Jesus does for his people. Now, I just want to pause here. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or you're still investigating, or you're not sure, or you're a baby Christian, it's really important that you grasp this, what Jesus has done for you. One of the best ways of doing it is Alpha starting again June 18. All right, come along to dinner, hang out with a bunch of people, um, all of whom want to investigate, want to chat, want to discuss, want to ask questions. It's the best way of getting to know this. And if you have friends, in that, you know, and they may not be here, bring them along to Alpha. Please get involved. It's, it's great. This is the second time we're running it this year. We're hoping to run it three times this year. All right, so find out. Get involved. But back to Hebrews. I want you to notice verse 35 again. And remember I said there was confidence at the beginning. Confidence in verse 35. That's why the big idea of this passage is confidence. But verse 35 says, do not throw away your confidence. Which means that even though Christian confidence is objectively grounded in the work of Jesus, 
It is subjectively lived out. And what I mean is this. So, for example, in sport. In sport, your skills in a particular sport are objective. You're good, you're bad, you're mediocre, whatever. You've got certain skills. But your confidence is subjective. And yes, your skills are important, but your confidence is also important, right? I'll give you an example. that um, I play a bit of tennis nowadays. In tennis, it always happens. A better player can lose to a worse player simply because of a loss of confidence. Their skills, objectively speaking, are better. But when they lose confidence on the court or in a match, it can all turn around. That's a little bit like the Christian life. Your confidence is based on the objective work of Jesus. But Hebrews says, don't throw away your confidence. What it means is, you can actually throw it away. That is, it's something that subjectively you need to grow in and feed, right? If you don't want to throw it away, which brings me to my next point. How do you feed confidence? How do you feed confidence? So, um, back to the passage. Uh, Remember verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, it is the objective confidence, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, and now we get to how do we feed confidence. And um, I want you to notice there are a lot of verbs, right? Action words, active words in the next section. They're words like approach. They're words like hold fast, consider, spur, encourage. What it's telling us is this. It ain't going to happen just by you passively sitting back, all right? These are active words. And three things in particular that we need to do to feed confidence. Number one, draw near. Number two, hold fast. Number three, consider one another. All right, and again, as I said, these verses are a window into the back half of the passage. So the later verses we'll use as examples for those three things. But the first thing is draw near to God. Draw near to God. And you've got the passage there. Since we have confidence, let us, verse 22, draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The logic is this. You have this confidence. You have access to God, right? Backstage access. Through Jesus, you have it. So use it. That's the logic. You have it, so use it. The White House in Washington, D.C. is probably one of the most secure buildings in the world. There is a no-fly zone around it for miles. And if you fly there, you will have a surface-to-air missile shooting you down, or numbers of them. There are sensors all around the ground. And the sensors are so sensitive, actually often, I read, that squirrels will set it off. And a squirrel will set it off, and then all of these Secret Service agents will descend on a squirrel, okay? But that's how sensitive it is. The windows are, of course, bulletproof. The fence, you think, oh, that's just a fence. It's actually ram-proof. Unless you have a tank, you can't get through it just by ramming a car or a big car through it. The underground bunker, the sit room, the situation room, and other places underground can survive a nuclear attack, okay? This is the White House. You can't just access it as a public member. Now, I know you've seen White House tours and people do go on White House tours, but let's just let you know, this isn't, you can't just turn up on the day and go on a White House tour. You have to be vetted 21 days in advance with background checks, right? And you have to be a U.S. citizen or someone really special to even get a White House tour. So this is the White House. It is one of the most secure and inaccessible buildings in the world. And yet, 
You might know, and I've, I've used this illustration so many times. One of the most famous photos is of JFK there, and look who's under his desk, his son, JFK Jr. Now, how, how is it possible for a kid to have this much access into the Oval Office? Well, it, you can, because he is the son of the president. He has that kind of access, right? When no one else would, the son has that kind of access to even be able to play under the desk of the president in the most secure and inaccessible building in the world. Well, Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have this kind of access, yeah? It's secured for you by Jesus. It says that his blood makes us clean, and it's cleaning us from the inside out. And there's an image there of his sprinkling with his blood. That actually is um, looking at, uh, reminding us of the Old Testament when Moses actually sprinkled blood on the people of God, right, as a way of saying, you are now the people of God. It's the sprinkling of the, of the covenant. And, and it says that Jesus' sacrificial death, his blood, sprinkles out. But it's not just, you know, blood landing on our clothes, you know, that would be kind of messy. It's actually what he does for us on the inside. It cleanses us from a guilty conscience, it says. And then it's confirmed by water. And I think there he's talking about baptism. When a person gets baptized, that's a symbol of their inside-out cleaning that Jesus does through his blood. And it's saying, you have this access through Jesus. But it tells us to draw near to God because it's saying, you have it, but are you using it? Are you enjoying it? Are you actually taking advantage of the access? Because it's yours. For those with sincere hearts, you can access God with full assurance. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to say you have that access, but is this reflected in the way you relate to God? Is it reflected in the way that you relate to God? In the way you pray? In the way you worship? In the way you think about God? In the way you approach God? And and I want to say especially, is it reflected in the way you relate to God when you sin, when you mess up? And and the reason why I'm mentioning relating to God and drawing near to God in sin is because, remember the context, the, the The next section, verses 26 to 31, is this warning passage against falling away. We won't read it again. Um, And it's a tough passage, and it's it's a bigger question about, you know, can Christians, genuine Christians, fall away? And I'm not going to deal with that now, because I actually dealt with it back in Hebrews chapter 6. So again, look at, listen to the old sermon about that. But I want you to notice here, it's talking about someone who sins, but it's not just any kind of sinning. It's someone who sins... But instead of turning to God for forgiveness, decides instead to abandon Jesus forever. And this is, this is why it's not just any kind of sinning. We all sin. We all mess up as Christians. This is talking about apostasy. Have you heard of the word apostasy? To be an apostate is to abandon your faith. It's a deliberate, constant sinning by giving up your faith. That is the particular circumstances talking about. And I highlight that because that is an example of, Well, it's the exact opposite example of what it means to draw near to God, all right? Drawing near to God means that even when you sin, especially when you are aware of your sin, instead of running away like Adam and Eve in the garden and hiding, withdrawing in fear, you still draw near to God, even when you feel guilt-ridden and shameful. In fact, you especially draw near to God 
because you know no matter how you feel, Jesus has given you that access to keep coming to God. The monk Martin Luther was guilt-ridden, a Catholic Augustinian monk, fearful always of God's punishment over his sin. But then he understood the good news of Jesus. And he said this, the quote is there for you, God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sin be strong. Literally, sin boldly. But let your, Christ in, your, let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin and death and the world. And this discovery started the Protestant Reformation, all right? So let me ask you, are there sins you feel so guilty and ashamed and weighed down by that you haven't run to God for, you haven't drawn near to Him for? Maybe it's just created this fearful distance between you and God. You don't feel like you can pray. Or maybe you think, I just keep messing up in the same way. It's a habitual sin. Surely He can't forgive me again and again and again. Remember when Jesus told us, his followers, if someone should sin against you to forgive, not seven times, but 77 times seven, which is another way of saying you just keep forgiving. You know what? If Jesus tells us to forgive others pretty much every time they sin against us, how much more will God forgive you, no matter how many times you mess up? Yeah? So draw near to God today. If this is you, Don't leave it, confess it. Talk to God. Come and talk to me if you need to as well. All right, so that's the first one. Draw near to God. Secondly, hold fast to hope. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. Or literally it's, let us hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. Um, Why why mention that is because the confession of hope is probably, um, actually, he's actually talking about their public confession of faith, probably when they got baptized, because the verse before just talked about the washing of water, you know, the baptism is there, so it's probably, he's reminding them of, you know, when baptism candidates get up and they confess their faith in front of others publicly or give their testimony, that's what we do at SWEC, he's reminding them of that. See, the opposite of that is what we looked at in those verses earlier, of someone who deliberately renounces their faith, or the apostates, okay? But I want you to note it's also not, he actually doesn't talk about the confession of faith, which is true, but he specifically says the confession of hope. See, Christian faith is primarily hope. That is, it's trusting in promises that are yet to be fulfilled. It's future-directed. It's hope. And that's actually what makes holding on and clinging on and holding fast difficult, right? Because the bulk of what we're promised as Christians is still to come, is it not? And that's hard to hold on to in the face of suffering and opposition. But you want a good example of Christians actually holding on? Again, Look at the context. These Christians in Hebrews, look at these verses, verse 32. Let me read those passages out for you again. After he tells them about the warning of of turning away and becoming an apostate, he does hope better for his readers, though, because he says to them, 
But remember those early days after you have received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. Yeah, that's an example of holding fast to the confession of hope. Um, a recent example, more recent example, is in 2015, you might have seen ISIS beheaded on video 21 Egyptian Christians. Now, I wonder how you would respond if you had a machete on the back of your neck. Would you remain faithful to your confession of hope? Would you remain faithful to your promises as, as a follower of Jesus, never to deny Him, never to leave Him. You would only do that if you believed with all your heart that there is something greater beyond death, right? A greater hope, a greater promise, a greater reward worth you losing your head over. And that's what happened with these 21 Egyptian Christians. Now, that's an extreme example because let's admit, holding on, holding fast to our confession is probably not going to be like that for any of us. It's likely not going to be a single moment when you get a knife put to your back or a gun put to your head. So the statistics tell us that everywhere else in the world, Christianity is actually growing. In Asia, South America, Africa especially, even in the Middle East. But in the West, Australia, Canada, UK, US, people are leaving the church in droves. It's called deconversion. And Statistics vary from 12 to 25% of people who used to go to church will deconvert, right? That's tragic, but I think we know people like that all around us, don't we? Now, none of them are going to have a gun or a sword held to their heads. They've not let go of hope because they're about to have their hands chopped off, and that's why they can't hold on. No, it's because they've deliberately or neglectfully loosen their grip. That's how it happens. And it's not going to be due to persecution or suffering. In fact, persecution and suffering tends to have the opposite effect, okay? But due to compromise, due to worldliness. Because here's the thing, right? It says, hold fast to Jesus. So imagine that you're holding fast to Jesus. Well, it's hard to hold fast to Jesus if you're only doing it with one hand, but then the other hand you're holding on to the world, all right? If you're clinging on to your dear life to, say, um, a lifeguard, you better do it with both hands. You can't cling on with one hand and also have your other hand trying to cling on to the world. It doesn't work. You see, what we have in the Christian life is a war, and it's a war of promises. It's a war of hope, because God has made you promises, but so does the world. The world promises you some pretty big things. Of course, most of it, it cannot deliver at all. But I wonder, have you begun to let go of God's promises in favor of the world? Well, this passage warns us not to do that. Cling on, hold fast to God and God alone and His promises. All right, so if you've felt yourself letting go, is it time to come back? Okay, all of the first two ways, right, draw near, hold fast, they won't work without the third one, and that's verse 24. 
and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, I want to tell you four things to note. It's not on the outline, so you're just going to have to listen or take notes. Number one, it actually literally is consider one another for the spurring on of each other. All right, so it's not first and foremost about considering how you may spur one another. Literally, it's consider one another, that's the object of the verb, for the spurring on. And I think there's an important difference. It's not so much, let's consider ways of spurring each other on, right? That may be true, but it's actually consider other people. That's the main thing we're trying to do. So he's saying, consider, pay attention to, be mindful of others, right? With the goal of spurring them on. But it's primarily about paying attention to one another. You see, church is a one another thing. You don't come to church considering yourself. You come to church considering others, being mindful of others. We keep going on about coming on time. Why are we blocked off the back section, getting you to fill up from the front? Right? And we're trying to make that a habit, have you noticed? It's great. Thank you for doing that today. Please continue to do that. It is inconvenient, right? But church is not about you. Church is about considering one another. Okay? What changes if you came to church or plan to come to church every week considering other people, being mindful of, paying attention to others rather than yourself? So that's the first thing. Number two, the word spur is actually a pretty strong word, okay? Um, It literally means to provoke, to stir up. Um, it's, and it's usually used negatively. It's sort of like when you troll someone online just to get a response. That's the kind of word we're looking at. But it can be used positively, but it's a very strong word. All right? I'll give you an example of it. Um, There's a documentary on Netflix about the 2008 U.S. Olympic Redeem Team, the, the, the um, basketball team. Um, and it's called the Redeem Team because in 2004 they lost the Olympics Um, In 2006, they lost the world championships. They were supposed to be the best players in the world, the NBA, and they totally messed up. And so the 2008, they tried to redeem themselves. Now, among uh, the redeem team in 2008 were newer stars, guys like LeBron James, who's still playing, Dwayne Wade and others. But then they wanted Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant, uh, to play. So he was selected. Now, Kobe was known to be fairly quiet, not particularly friendly, and a bit of a solo star. And so the newer guys were like, how would the team get along with Kobe in it? And then they had their first practice. Kobe Bryant went all in. He put his ego aside. He put his body on the line. He went for every loose ball. He defended with his life. He played with, this is just practice, by the way, with each other. But he played with his team, he played for his team, and they saw Kobe Bryant play like that, and they, they thought, if he does this, all of us need to do this. That's what it looks like to spur one another on. That's what Kobe did by his example. I want you to know that you can have this kind of effect on others at church. We uh, go on a lot about global missions. Next week is Global Mission Sunday. Jamin's coming to preach to us. He's, we're going to send him, hopefully, uh, in the next, within the next year. So that's 
little bit of context of why it's important to stay around after lunch to hear Jamin. Um, he's going to literally unreach people groups, um, people who've never heard the name of Jesus in parts of Indonesia. Anyway, um, you know what? Seeing missionary partners like Jamin, but particularly also Chandai, so that's Kerry and, and Heidi and their family, you know, with young kids making sacrifices. Uh, let me tell you what that did for one of our elders and his family. He's got three young kids. I won't name the elder. Um, but as he saw our missionary partners, especially families in the same, same stage of life as him, make that kind of sacrifice, it's actually spurred this particular elder with his three young kids to consider, hey, if they can do it, why not me? And so this elder and his family are now exploring, literally exploring, potentially giving up his job. Right? It's not like he's felt called to ministry this whole time being a missionary. No, he's been in a stable career, job, he's had three kids already, but now, you know, he's now considering, well, do I give it all up? What would it look like? He's actually making plans to do that with his young family. Why? Because he was spurred on by our missionary families. And I hope as you hear about this elder and his family, again, it's not like he decided when he was like, 19 years old to become a missionary, right? He's now in his late 30s, I think, maybe 40, potentially giving it all up. What does that do for you when you hear about that? Doesn't it make you think, if he can do it, why not me? Do you see? That's what it's supposed to be like, spurring each other, provoking each other, stirring up each other to love and good works. So look around. Who has spurred you to love and good deeds? I'm sure you can think of plenty. Well, guess what? You can do that for others too, all right? That's the second thing about spur. Number three, you can't do any of that without making a habit of meeting together, of physically gathering. It says, don't give up meeting together, as is the habit of some. Now, some people give up going to the gym because of injuries. But you know, my experience and probably yours is, most people give up going to the gym because of neglect, yeah? Not because of an injury, all right? Just because you stop going every day and every three times a week and it drops to once a week and then it drops to once a month and you just stop going altogether. That's what this is talking about. The neglect of meeting together is not because of some big thing, it's just that it's slipped down your priority list. You know, post-COVID, this isn't just the experience of our church, but post-COVID, the statistics are if you used to come to church pretty much every week, four out of four Sundays a month, you'd probably have dropped that back to three out of four Sundays. If you used to come three out of four Sundays, it's now two out of four Sundays. If you used to come twice a month, it's probably now once a month. If you used to come once a month, you pretty much have stopped altogether. That's almost universally what COVID has done to churches. You know what was really tragic? An older Christian couple, not from our church, but I, I know them personally, they've decided post-COVID just not to turn up at all. But, you know, they, they want to turn up only online. Now, turning up to church online, if you must, is great because you might have health issues, you might have disabilities. I know a, a family in our church who is going through things like cancer treatment. That is legitimate. Good on you for still doing that if you're watching. But this older couple I'm talking about, mature Christians, decided just to go on church online. They have none of those issues. In fact, every Saturday, they're out doing park run. They're pretty healthy. 
but they've just decided going to church physically is just too much hassle, so we'll only attend church online. That's a tragedy, isn't it? Isn't that a tragedy? We're not talking about new Christians. We're talking about mature Christians. Now, I'm going to say this carefully because, again, there are exceptions due to disability and sickness. But for the vast majority of you, and probably I'm talking to the, you know, to choir here, but if you're watching or you're watching this later, let me say this. So the vast majority of us at SWEC, let me say this. You cannot feed your faith. You cannot grow in your confidence. You cannot increase in godliness and Christ-likeness. You cannot hold on to hope. You cannot be all that God wants you to be if you don't turn up to church every week. Okay? Don't lose the habit of meeting together. And if for you it's not a habit, make it a habit. Weekend away, uh, the Bankstown congregation had theirs a few months ago. Our speaker was um, Peter Jensen. He's a theologian, he's a preacher. He uh, got his Doctor of Philosophy at Oxford. He's the former principal of Moore College. He was the Archbishop of Sydney. He's 80 years old. And you know what he said to us? He said the reason he's still a Christian today is because of church. And he's not talking about some mega church. It's the local church that he still goes to and has been for 40-odd years. And he says, the reason why I'm a Christian today is because I go to church every week. That's it. Right? That's, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science. And if that's true for him, it's got to be true for us, yeah? You see, the picture of confident Christianity is deeply communal. It's I need you and you need me. And again, the context tells us this. Remember this passage we read? I want to read it again. But the writer is telling them, remember when you used to do this. Remember when you stood side by side with those who were persecuted. When you suffered along with those in prison. So friends, if you've let your commitment to coming to church every week slip, especially over the last three years, then maybe it's time for you to remember as well. Remember, for some of you, just remember your former level of commitment. Sunday church was important. Midweek community groups was important. Actively serving was important. Intentionally coming to one another, each other. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, to consider one another. That was important. And maybe you need to get back into that. Remember. Or if you've never done that, start now. Get it into the habit. And the last, of course, the fourth thing about um, consider one another is do it all the more as Jesus' return draws near. Do it all the more, right? And he's particularly saying keep on doing the encouraging thing. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day of Jesus' returning complete uh, approaching. And what does the word encourage mean? Well, coming back to what I opened with. Michael's adoption, his class, that is a beautiful picture of encouraging, of cheering on Michael, of being there for him and with him. And that's what it's supposed to be like. And in fact, that is what this whole sermon, and in fact, the whole book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, is an encouragement. That's what it's all been about. It's what we need to do for one another and keep on doing all the more because Jesus is coming back soon. Let's get ready to sing. Let me pray. Father God, we pray that as we look forward to Jesus, our hope and the promises that he's made to come true for us, 
that we would do all of these things all the more. Draw near, hold fast, consider one another all the more as the day approaches. Help us do that by your Holy Spirit. Amen.